Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Stories for the Road. This is your host, John Hagedorn. And again, we present Tarzan and the Jewels of Opar. Today, chapters 20 and 21 as we near the end. And now, chapter 20. Jane Clayton, again a prisoner. Though her clothes were torn and her hair disheveled, Albert Werper realized that he never before had looked upon such a vision of loveliness as that which Lady Greystoke presented in the relief and joy which he felt in coming so unexpectedly upon a friend and rescuer when hope had seemed so far away. If the Belgian had entertained any doubts as to the woman's knowledge of his part in the perfidious attack upon her home and herself, it was quickly dissipated by the genuine friendliness of her greeting. She told him quickly of all that had befallen her since he had departed from her home, and as she spoke of the death of her husband, her eyes were veiled by the tears which she could not repress. "'I am shocked,' said Werper, in a well-simulated sympathy. "'But I am not surprised. That devil there,' and he pointed toward the body of Ahmed Zek, "'has terrorized the entire country. Your Waziri are either exterminated or have been driven out of their country far to the south.' The men of Ahmed Zek occupy the plain about your former home. There is neither sanctuary nor escape in that direction. Our only hope lies in traveling northward as rapidly as we may, of coming to the camp of the raiders before the knowledge of Ahmed Zek's death reaches those who were left there, and of obtaining, through some ruse, an escort toward the north. I think that the thing can be accomplished, for I was a guest of the raiders before I knew the nature of the man and those at the camp are not aware that I turned against him when I discovered his villainy. Come, we will make all possible haste to reach the camp before those who accompanied Ahmed Zek upon his last raid have found his body and carried the news of his death to the cutthroats who remain behind. It is our only hope, Lady Greystoke, and you must place your entire faith in me if I am to succeed. Wait for me here a moment while I take from the Arab's body the wallet that he stole from me. And Werper stepped quickly to the dead man's side, and kneeling, sought with quick fingers the pouch of jewels. To his consternation, there was no sign of them in the garments of Ahmed Zek. Rising, he walked back along the trail, searching for some trace of the missing pouch or its contents. But he found nothing, even though he searched carefully the vicinity of his dead horse, and for a few paces into the jungle on either side. Puzzled, disappointed, and angry, he at last returned to the girl. The wallet is gone, he explained crisply, and I dare not delay longer in search of it. We must reach the camp before the returning raiders. Unsuspicious of the man's true character, Jane Clayton saw nothing peculiar in his plans, or in his specious explanation of his former friendship for the raider, and so she grasped with alacrity the seeming hope for safety which he proffered her, and turning about, she set out with Albert Werper toward the hostile camp in which she so lately had been a prisoner. It was late in the afternoon of the second day before they reached their destination, and as they paused upon the edge of the clearing before the gates of the walled village, Werper cautioned the girl to accede to whatever he might suggest by his conversation with the raiders. "'I shall tell them,' he said, "'that I apprehended you after you escaped from the camp, that I took you to Ahmed Zek, and that as he was engaged in a stubborn battle with the Waziri, he directed me to return to camp with you, to obtain here a sufficient guard,' and to ride north with you as rapidly as possible, and dispose of you at the most advantageous terms to a certain slave-broker whose name he gave me. Again the girl was deceived by the apparent frankness of the Belgian. She realized that desperate situations required desperate handling, 
and though she trembled inwardly at the thought of again entering the vile and hideous village of the raiders, she saw no better course than that which her companion had suggested. Calling aloud to those who tended the gates, Werper, grasping Jane Clayton by the arm, walked boldly across the clearing. Those who opened the gates to him permitted their surprise to show clearly in their expressions. That the discredited and hunted lieutenant should be thus returning fearlessly of his own volition seemed to disarm them quite as effectually as his manner toward Lady Greystoke had deceived her. The sentries at the gate returned Werper's salutations and viewed with astonishment the prisoner whom he brought into the village with him. Immediately the Belgian sought the Arab who had been left in charge of the camp during Ahmed Zek's absence, and again his boldness disarmed suspicion and won the acceptance of his false explanation of his return. The fact that he had brought back with him the woman prisoner who had escaped added strength to his claims, and Mohammed Bade soon found himself fraternizing good-naturedly with the very man whom he would have slain without compunction had he discovered him alone in the jungle just a half-hour before. Jane Crane was again confined to the prison hut she had formerly occupied, but as she realized that this was but a part of the deception which she and Freecolt were playing upon the credulous raiders, it was with quite a different sensation that she again entered the vile and filthy interior from that which she had previously experienced, when hope was so far away. Once more she was bound, and sentries placed before the door of her prison. But before Werper left her, he whispered words of cheer into her ear. Then he left and made his way back to the tent of Mohammed Bade. He had been wondering how long it would be before the raiders who had ridden out with Ahmed Zek would return with the murdered body of their chief. And the more he thought upon the matter, the greater his fears became, that without accomplices his plan would fail. What even if he got away from the camp in safety before any returned with the true story of his guilt? Of what value would this advantage be other than to protract for a few days his mental torture and his life? These hard riders, familiar with every trail and bypath, would get him long before he could hope to reach the coast. As these thoughts passed through his mind, he entered the tent where Mohammed Bade sat cross-legged upon a rug, smoking. The Arab looked up as the European came into his presence. "'Greetings, O oh brother,' he said. "'Greetings,' replied Werper. For a while, neither spoke further. The Arab was the first to break the silence. "'And my master, Ahmed Zek, was well when last you saw him?' he asked. "'Never was he safer from the sins and dangers of mortality,' replied the Belgian. "'It is well,' said Mohammed Bade, blowing a little puff of blue smoke straight out before him. Again there was silence for several minutes. "'And if he were dead?' asked the Belgian, determined to lead up to the truth, an attempt to bribe Mohammed Bade into his service." The Arab's eyes narrowed, and he leaned forward, his gaze boring straight into the eyes of the Belgian. "'I've been thinking much, Werper, since you returned so unexpectedly to the camp of the man whom you had deceived, and who sought you with death in his heart. I have been with Ahmed Zek for many years. His own mother never knew him so well as I. He never forgives. Much less would he again trust a man who had once betrayed him. That I know.' I have thought much, as I said, and the result of my thinking has assured me that Ahmed Zek is dead, for otherwise you never would have dared to return to this camp, unless you either be a braver man or a bigger fool than I have imagined. 
and if this evidence of my judgment is not sufficient, I have but just now received from your own lips even more confirmatory witness. For did you not say that Ahmed Zek was never more safe from the sins and dangers of mortality? Ahmed Zek is dead. You need not deny it, Werper. I was not his mother or his mistress, so do not fear that my wailing shall disturb you. Tell me why you have come back here. Tell me what you want, and Werper, if you still possess the jewels of which Ahmed Zek told me, there is no reason why you and I should not ride north together and divide the ransom of the white woman and the contents of the pouch you wear about your person, eh? The evil eyes narrowed. A vicious, thin-lipped smile tortured the villainous face as Mohammed Bade grinned knowingly into the face of the Belgian. Werper was both relieved and disturbed by the Arab's attitude. The complacency with which he accepted the death of his chief lifted a considerable burden of apprehension from the shoulders of Ahmed Zek's assassin. But his demand for a share of the jewels boded ill for Werper when Mohammed Bade should have learned that the precious stones were no longer in the Belgian's possession. To acknowledge that he had lost the jewels might be to arouse the wrath or suspicion of the Arab to such an extent as would jeopardize his newfound chances of escape. His one hope seemed, then, to lie in fostering Mohammed Bey's belief that the jewels were still in his possession, and depend upon the accidents of the future to open an avenue of escape. Could he contrive to tent with the Arab upon the march north, he might find opportunity in plenty to remove this menace to his life and liberty. It was worth trying, and further, there seemed no other way out of his difficulty. "'Yes,' he said, "'Ahmed Zek is dead. "'He fell in battle with a company of Abyssinian cavalry "'that held me captive. "'During the fighting I escaped, "'but I doubt if any of Ahmed Zek's men live, "'and the gold they sought is now in the possession of the Abyssinians. "'Even now they are doubtless marching on this camp, "'for they were sent by Menelik to punish Ahmed Zek and his followers "'for a raid upon an Abyssinian village. "'There are many of them. "'If we do not make haste to escape,' We shall all suffer the same fate as Ahmed Zek. Mohammed Bey listened in silence. How much of the unbeliever's story he might safely believe he did not know. But as it afforded him an excuse for deserting the village and making for the north, he was not inclined to cross-question the Belgian too minutely. And if I ride north with you, he asked, half the jewels and half the ransom of the woman shall be mine? Yes, "'replied Werper. "'Good,' said Mohammed Bade. "'I go now to give the order for the breaking of camp early on the morrow.' "'And he rose to leave the tent. "'Werper laid a detaining hand upon his arm. "'Wait,' he said. "'Let us determine how many shall accompany us. "'It is not well that we be burdened by the women and children, "'for then indeed we might be overtaken by the Abyssinians. "'It would be far better to select a small guard of your bravest men,' "'and leave word behind that we are riding west. "'Then, when the Abyssinians come, "'they will be put upon the wrong trail "'should they have it in their hearts to pursue us. "'And if they do not, "'they will at least ride north with less rapidity "'than as though they thought that we were ahead of them.' "'The serpent is less wise than thou, Werper,' "'said Mohammed Bade with a smile. "'It shall be done as you say. Twenty men shall accompany us, "'and we shall ride west.' "'when we leave the village.' "'Good!' cried the Belgian. "'And so it was arranged. "'Early the next morning Jane Clayton, "'after an almost sleepless night, 
was aroused by the sound of voices outside her prison, and a moment later, Monsieur Fricolte and two Arabs entered. The latter unbound her ankles and lifted her to her feet. Then her wrists were loosed. She was given a handful of dry bread and let out into the faint light of dawn. She looked questioningly at Fricolte, and at a moment that the Arab's attention was attracted in another direction, the man leaned toward her and whispered that all was working out as he had planned. Thus assured, the young woman felt a renewal of the hope which the long and miserable night of bondage had almost expunged. Shortly after, she was lifted to the back of a horse, and surrounded by Arabs, was escorted through the gateway of the village and off into the jungle toward the west. Half an hour later, the party turned north, and northerly was their direction for the balance of the march. Monsieur Fricold spoke with her, but seldom, and she understood that in carrying out his deception he must maintain the semblance of her captor, rather than protect her, and so she suspected nothing, though she saw the friendly relations which seemed to exist between the European and the Arab leader of the band. If Werper succeeded in keeping himself from conversation with the young woman, he failed signally to expel her from his thoughts. A hundred times a day he found his eyes wandering in her direction and feasting themselves upon the charms of her face and figure. Each hour his infatuation for her grew, until his desire to possess her gained almost the proportions of madness. If either the girl or Mohammed Bade could have guessed what passed in the mind of the man with each thought a friend and ally, the apparent harmony of the little company would have been rudely disturbed. Werper had not succeeded in arranging to tent with Mohammed Bade, and so he revolved many plans for the assassination of the Arab that would have been greatly simplified had he been permitted to share the other's nightly shelter. Upon the second day out, Mohammed Bade reined his horse to the side of the animal on which the captive was mounted. It was, apparently, the first notice which the Arab had taken of the girl, but many times during these two days had his cunning eyes peered greedily from beneath the hood of his burnous to gloat upon the beauties of the prisoner. Nor was this hidden infatuation of any recent origin. He had conceived it when first the wife of the Englishman had fallen into the hands of Ahmed Zek, but while that austere chieftain lived, Mohammed Bade had not even dared hope for a realization of his imaginings. Now, though, it was different. Only a despised dog of a Christian stood between himself and possession of the girl. How easy it would be to slay the unbeliever, and take unto himself both the woman and the jewels. With the latter in his possession, the ransom which might be obtained for the captive would form no great inducement to her relinquishment in the face of the pleasures of sole ownership of her. Yes, he would kill Werper, retain all the jewels, and keep the Englishwoman. He turned his eyes upon her as she rode along at his side. How beautiful she was! His fingers opened and closed, skinny brown talons itching to feel the soft flesh of the victim in their remorseless clutch. "'Do you know,' he asked, leaning toward her, "'where this man would take you?' Jane Clayton nodded affirmatively. "'And you are willing to become the plaything of a black sultan?' The girl drew herself up to her full height and turned her head away, but she did not reply. She feared lest her knowledge of the ruse that Monsieur Fricot was playing upon the Arab might cause her to betray herself through an insufficient display of terror and aversion. "'You can escape this fate,' continued the Arab. "'Mohammed Bade will save you.' And he reached out a brown hand and seized the fingers of her right hand in a grasp so sudden and so fierce 
that his brutal passion was revealed as clearly in the act as though his lips had confessed it in words. Jane Clayton wrenched herself from his grasp. "'You beast!' she cried. "'Leave me, or I shall call Monsieur Freekold.' Mohammed Bey drew back with a scowl. His thin upper lip curled upward, revealing his smooth white teeth. "'Monsieur Freekold?' he jeered. "'There is no such person. The man's name is Werper. He is a liar, a thief, and a murderer. He killed his captain in the Congo country and fled to the protection of Ahmed Zek. He led Ahmed Zek to the plunder of your home. He followed your husband and planned to steal his gold from him. He has told me that you think him your protector, and he has played upon this to win your confidence.' "'so that it might be easier to carry you north "'and sell you into some black sultan's harem. "'I am your only hope.' "'And with this assertion to provide the captain with food for thought, "'the Arab spurred forward toward the head of the column. "'Jane Clayton could not know how much of Mohammed Bey's indictment might be true, "'or how much false, "'but at least it had the effect of dampening her hopes "'and causing her to review with suspicion every past act of the man upon whom she had been looking as her sole protector in the midst of a world of enemies and dangers. On the march a separate tent had been provided for the captive, and at night it was pitched between those of Mohammed Bade and Werper. A sentry was posted at the front and another at the back, and with these precautions it had not been thought necessary to confine the prisoner to bonds. The evening following her interview with Mohammed Bade, Jane Clayton sat for some time at the opening of her tent "'watching the rough activities of the camp. "'She had eaten the meal that had been brought to her "'by Mohammed Bade's slave, "'a meal of cassava cakes and nondescript stew, "'in which a new-killed monkey, a couple of squirrels, "'and the remains of a zebra, slain the previous day, "'were impartially and unsavorily combined. "'But the one-time Baltimore Bell "'had long since submerged in the stern battle for existence, "'an aestheticism which formerly revolted "'at much slighter provocation.' As the girl's eyes wandered across the trampled jungle clearing, already squalid from the presence of man, she no longer apprehended either the nearer objects of the foreground, the uncouth men laughing or quarreling among themselves, or the jungle beyond, which circumscribed the extreme range of her material vision. Her gaze passed through all these, unseen, to center itself upon a distant bungalow and scenes of happy security, which brought to her eyes tears of mingled joy and sorrow. She saw a tall, broad-shouldered man riding in from distant fields. She saw herself waiting to greet him with an armful of fresh-cut roses from the bushes which flanked the little rustic gate before her. All this was gone, banished into the past, wiped out by the torches and bullets and hatred of these hideous and degenerate men. With a stifled sob and a little shudder, Jane Clayton turned back into her tent and sought the pile of unclean blankets which were her bed. Throwing herself face downward upon them, she sobbed forth her misery until kindly sleep brought her, at least temporary, relief. And while she slept, a figure stole from the tent that stood to the right of hers. It approached the sentry before the doorway and whispered a few words in the man's ear. The latter nodded and strode off to the darkness in the direction of his own blankets. The figure passed to the rear of Jane Clayton's tent and spoke again to the sentry there, and this man also left, following in the trail of the first. Then he who had sent them away stole silently to the tent flap and untying the fastenings, 
entered with the noiselessness of a disembodied spirit. We'll return with Chapter 21 of Tarzan and the Jewels of Opar right after these sponsor messages. And now, Chapter 21, The Flight to the Jungle. Sleepless upon his blankets, Albert Werper let his evil mind dwell upon the charms of the woman in the nearby tent. He had noted Mohammed Bade's sudden interest in the girl, and judging the man by his own standards, had guessed at the basis of the Arab's sudden change of attitude toward the prisoner. As he let his imaginings run riot, they aroused within him a bestial jealousy of Mohammed Bade, and a great fear that the other might encompass his base designs upon the defenseless girl. By a strange process of reasoning, Werper, whose designs were identical with the Arabs, pictured himself as Jane Clayton's protector, and presently convinced himself that the attentions which might seem hideous to her if preferred by Mohammed Bade would be welcomed from Albert Werper. Her husband was dead, and Werper fancied that he could replace in the girl's heart the position which had been vacated by the act of the Grim Reaper. He could offer Jane Clayton marriage, a thing which Mohammed Bade would not offer and which the girl would spurn from him with as deep disgust as she would his unholy lust. It was not long before the Belgian had succeeded in convincing himself that the captive not only had every reason for having conceived sentiments of love for him, but that she had by various feminine methods acknowledged her newborn affection. And then a sudden resolution possessed him. He threw the blankets from him and rose to his feet. Pulling on his boots and buckling his cartridge belt and revolver about his hips, he stepped to the flap of his tent and looked out. There was no sentry before the entrance to the prisoner's tent. What could it mean? Fate was indeed playing into his hands. Stepping outside, he passed to the rear of the girl's tent. There was no sentry there either. And now boldly, he walked to the entrance and stepped within. Dimly the moonlight illumined the interior. Across the tent, a figure bent above the blankets of a bed. There was a whispered word and another figure rose from the blankets to a sitting position. Slowly Albert Werper's eyes were becoming accustomed to the half-darkness of the tent. He saw that the figure leaning over the bed was that of a man, and he guessed at the truth of the nocturnal visitor's identity. A sullen, jealous rage enveloped him. He took a step in the direction of the two. He heard a frightened cry break from the girl's lips as she recognized the figures of the man above her and he saw Mohammed Bade seize her by the throat and bear her back upon the blankets. Cheated passion cast a red blur before the eyes of the Belgian. No! The man should not have her. She was for him and him alone. He would not be robbed of his rights. Quickly he ran across the tent and threw himself upon the back of Mohammed Bade. The latter, though surprised by this sudden and unexpected attack, was not one to give up without a battle. The Belgian's fingers were feeling for his throat, but the Arab tore them away, and rising, wheeled upon his adversary. As they faced each other, Werper struck the Arab a heavy blow in the face, sending him staggering backward. If he had followed up his advantage, he would have had Mohammed Bade at his mercy in another moment. But instead, he tugged at his revolver to draw it from its holster, and fate ordained that at that particular moment the weapon should stick in its leather holster. Before he could disengage it, Mohammed Bade had recovered himself and was dashing upon him. Again Werper struck the other in the face, and the Arab returned the blow, 
striking at each other and ceaselessly attempting to clinch. The two battled about the small interior of the tent, while the girl, wide-eyed in terror and astonishment, watched the duel in frozen silence. Again and again, Werper struggled to draw his weapon. Muhammad Bayed, anticipating no such opposition to his base desires, had come to the tent unarmed, except for a long knife which he now drew as he stood panting during the first brief rest of the encounter. "'Dog of a Christian!' he whispered. "'Look upon this knife in the hands of Muhammad Bayed. "'Look well, unbeliever, "'for it is the last thing in life that you shall see or feel. "'And with it, Muhammad Bayed will cut out your black heart. "'If you have a god, pray to him now, "'and a minute more you shall be dead.' "'And with that he rushed viciously upon the Belgian, "'his knife raised high above his head. "'Werper was still dragging futilely at his weapon. "'The Arab was almost upon him. In desperation, the European waited until Mohammed Bade was all but against him. Then he threw himself to one side to the floor of the tent, leaving a leg extended in the path of the Arab. The trick succeeded. Mohammed Bade, carried on by the momentum of his charge, stumbled over the projecting obstacle and crashed to the ground. Instantly he was up again and wheeling to renew the battle. But Werper was on foot ahead of him, and now his revolver, loosened from its holster, flashed in his hand. The Arab drove headfirst to grapple with him. There was a sharp report, a lurid gleam of flame in the darkness, and Mohammed Bade rolled over and over upon the floor to come to a final rest beside the bed of the woman he had sought to dishonor. Almost immediately following the report came the sound of excited voices in the camp without. Men were calling back and forth to one another, asking for the meaning of the shot. Werper could hear them running hither and thither, investigating. Jane Clayton had risen to her feet as the Arab died, and now she came forward with outstretched hands toward Werper. "'How can I ever thank you, my friend?' she asked. "'And to think that only today I had almost believed the infamous story which this beast told me of your perfidy and of your past. Forgive me, Monsieur Fricot. I might have known that a white man and a gentleman could be naught else than the protector of a woman of his own race amid the dangers of this savage land.' Werper's hands dropped limply at his sides. He stood looking at the girl, but he could find no words to reply to her. Her innocent arraignment of his true purposes was unanswerable. Outside, the Arabs were searching for the author of the disturbing shot. The two sentries who had been relieved and sent to their blankets by Mohammed Bayd were the first to suggest going to the tent of the prisoner. It occurred to them that possibly the woman had successfully defended herself against their leader. Werper heard the men approaching. To be apprehended as the slayer of Mohammed Bayd would be the equivalent to a sentence of immediate death. The fierce and brutal raiders would tear to pieces a Christian who had dared spill the blood of their leader. He must find some excuse to delay the finding of Mohammed Bayd's dead body. Returning his revolver to its holster, he walked quickly to the entrance of the tent. Parting the flaps, he stepped out and confronted the men who were rapidly approaching. Somehow he found within him the necessary bravado to force a smile to his lips as he held up his hand to bar their farther progress. The woman resisted, he said, and Mohammed Bayd was forced to shoot her. She is not dead, only slightly wounded. You may go back to your blankets. Mohammed Bayd and I will look after the prisoner. Then he turned and re-entered the tent, and the raiders, satisfied by this explanation, gladly returned to their broken slumbers. As he again faced Jane Clayton, Werper found himself animated by quite different intentions than those which had lured him from his blankets but a few minutes before. 
the excitement of his encounter with Mohammed Bade, as well as the dangers which he now faced at the hands of the raiders when morning must inevitably reveal the truth of what had occurred in the tent for the prisoner that night, had naturally cooled the hot passion which had dominated him when he entered the tent. But another and stronger force was exerting itself in the girl's favor. However low a man may sink, honor and chivalry, has he ever possessed them, are never entirely eradicated from his character, and although Albert Werper had long since ceased to evidence the slightest claim to either the one or the other, the spontaneous acknowledgment of them which the girl's speech had presumed had reawakened both honor and chivalry within him. For the first time he realized the almost hopeless and frightful position of the fair captive, and the depths of ignominy to which he had sunk, that had made it possible for him, a well-born European gentleman, to have entertained even for a moment the part that he had taken in the ruin of her home, happiness, and herself. Too much of baseness already lay at the threshold of his conscience for him even to hope entirely to redeem himself. But in the first sudden burst of contrition, the man conceived an honest intention to undo, insofar as lay within his power, the evil that his criminal avarice had brought upon this sweet and unoffending woman. As he stood apparently listening to the retreating footsteps, Jane Clayton approached him. "'What are we to do now?' she asked. "'Morning will bring discovery of this.' And she pointed to the still body of Mohammed Bade. "'They will kill you when they find him.' For a time Werper did not reply. Then he turned suddenly toward the woman. "'I have a plan,' he cried. "'It will require nerve and courage on your part. "'But you have already shown that you possess both. "'Can you endure still more?' "'I can endure anything,' she replied with a brave smile, "'that may offer us even a slight chance for escape.' "'You must simulate death,' he explained, "'while I carry you from the camp. "'I will explain to the sentries "'that Mohammed Bade has ordered me "'to take your body into the jungle. "'This seemingly unnecessary act,' I shall explain upon the grounds that Mohammed Bade has conceived a violent passion for you, and that he so regretted the act by which he had become your slayer, that he could not endure the silent reproach of your lifeless body. The girl held up her hand to stop. A smile touched her lips. Are you quite mad? she asked. Do you imagine that the sentries will credit any such ridiculous tale? You do not know them, he replied. Beneath their rough exteriors, Despite their calloused and criminal natures, there exists in each a well-defined strain of romantic emotionalism. You will find it among such as these throughout the world. It is romance which lures men to lead wild lives of outlawry and crime. The ruse will succeed. Never fear. Jane Clayton shrugged. We can but try it. And then what? I shall hide you in the jungle, continued the Belgian, coming for you alone and with two horses in the morning. "'But how will you explain Mohammed Bade's death?' she asked. "'It will be discovered before you ever can escape the camp in the morning.' "'I shall not explain it,' replied Werper. "'Mohammed Bade shall explain it himself. We must leave that to him. "'Are you ready for the venture?' "'Yes. But wait. I must get you a weapon and ammunition.' And Werper walked quickly from the tent." Very shortly he returned with an extra revolver and ammunition belt strapped about his waist. "'Are you ready?' he asked. "'Quite ready,' replied the girl. "'Then come and throw yourself limply across my left shoulder.' And Werper knelt to receive her. "'There,' he said, as he rose to his feet. "'Now let your arms, your legs, and your head hang limply. Remember that you are dead.' 
A moment later the man walked out into the camp, the body of the woman across his shoulder. A thorn boma had been thrown up about the camp to discourage the boulder of the hungry carnivora. A couple of sentries paced to and fro in the light of the fire which they kept burning brightly. The nearer of these looked up in surprise as he saw Werper approaching. "'Who are you?' he cried. "'What have you there?' Werper raised the hood of his burnous that the fellow might see his face. "'This is the body of the woman,' he explained. "'Mohammed Bate has asked me to take it into the jungle, "'for he cannot bear to look upon the face of her whom he loved "'and whom necessity compelled him to slay. "'He suffers greatly. He is inconsolable. "'It was with difficulty that I prevented him from taking his own life.' "'Across the speaker's shoulder, limp and frightened, "'the girl waited for the Arab's reply. "'He would laugh at this preposterous story. "'Of that she was sure.' In an instant he would unmask the deception that Monsieur Fricolt was attempting to practice upon him, and they would both be lost. She tried to plan how best she might aid her would-be rescuer in the fight which must most certainly follow within a moment or two. Then she heard the voice of the Arab as he replied to Monsieur Fricolt. "'Are you going alone, or do you wish me to awaken someone to accompany you?' he asked and his tone denoted not the least surprise that Mohammed Bade had suddenly discovered such remarkably sensitive characteristics. "'I shall go alone,' replied Werper, and he passed on and out through the narrow opening in the boma by which the sentry stood. A moment later he had entered among the boles of the trees with his burden, and when safely hidden from the sentry's view, lowered the girl to her feet, with a low, "'Shh!' when she would have spoken. Then he led her a little farther into the forest, "'halted beneath a large tree with spreading branches, "'buckled a cartridge belt and revolver about her waist, "'and assisted her to clamber up into the lower branches. "'Tomorrow,' he whispered, "'as soon as I can elude them, I will return for you. "'Be brave, Lady Greystoke. "'We may yet escape.' "'Thank you,' she replied in a low tone. "'You have been very kind and very brave.' "'Werper did not reply.' and the darkness of the night hid the scarlet flush of shame which swept upward across his face. Quickly he turned and made his way back to camp. The sentry, from his post, saw him enter his own tent, but he did not see him crawl under the canvas at the rear and sneak cautiously to the tent which the prisoner had occupied, where now lay the dead body of Mohammed Bade. Raising the lower edge of the rear wall, Werper crept within and approached the corpse. Without an instant's hesitation, he seized the dead wrist and dragged the body upon its back to a point where he had just entered. On hands and knees, he backed out as he had come in, drawing the corpse after him. Once outside, the Belgian crept to the side of the tent and surveyed as much of the camp as lay within his vision. No one was watching. Returning to the body, he lifted it to his shoulder, and risking all on a quick sally, ran swiftly across the narrow opening which separated the prisoner's tent from that of the dead man. Behind the silken wall he halted and lowered his burden to the ground, and there he remained motionless for several minutes, listening. Satisfied at last that no one had seen him, he stooped and raised the bottom of the tent wall, backed in and dragged the thing which had been Mohammed Bey after him. To the sleeping rugs of the dead raider he drew the corpse. Then he fumbled about in the darkness until he had found Mohammed Bey's revolver. With the weapon in his hand he returned to the side of the dead man, kneeled beside the bedding, and inserted his right hand with the weapon beneath the rugs, piled a number of thicknesses of the closely woven fabric over and about the revolver with his left hand. Then he pulled the trigger, 
and at the same time he coughed. The muffled report could not have been heard above the sound of his cough by one directly outside the tent. Werper was satisfied. A grim smile touched his lips as he withdrew the weapon from the rugs and placed it carefully in the right hand of the dead man, fixing three of the fingers around the grip and the index finger inside the trigger guard. A moment longer he tarried to rearrange the disordered rugs, and then he left as he had entered, fastening down the rear wall of the tent as it had been before he had raised it. Going to the tent of the prisoner, he removed there also the evidence that someone might have come or gone beneath the rear wall. Then he returned to his own tent, entered, fastened down the canvas, and crawled into his blankets. The following morning he was awakened by the excited voice of Mohammed Bey's slave calling to him at the entrance of his tent. "'Quick, quick!' cried the slave in a frightened tone. "'Come! Mohammed Bey is dead in his tent, dead by his own hand!' Werper sat up quickly in his blankets at the first alarm, a startled expression upon his countenance. But at the last words of the slave, a sigh of relief escaped his lips, and a slight smile replaced the tense lines upon his face. "'I come!' he called to the slave, and drawing on his boots, rose and went out of his tent. Excited Arabs and blacks were running from all parts of the camp toward the silken tent of Mohammed Bade, and when Werper entered, he found a number of the raiders crowded about the corpse. "'now cold and stiff. "'Shouldering his way among them, "'the Belgian halted beside the dead body of the raider. "'He looked down in silence for a moment upon the still face. "'Then he wheeled upon the Arabs. "'Who has done this thing?' he cried. "'His tone was both menacing and accusing. "'Who has murdered Mohammed Bade? "'A sudden chorus of voices arose in tumultuous protest. "'Mohammed Bade was not murdered,' they cried. "'He died by his own hand.' This and Allah are our witnesses, and they pointed to a revolver in the dead man's hand. For a time Werper pretended to be skeptical, but at last permitted himself to be convinced that Mohammed Bade had indeed killed himself in remorse for the death of the white woman he had, all unknown to his followers, loved so devotedly. Werper himself wrapped the blankets of the dead man about the corpse, taking care to fold inward the scorched and bullet-torn fabric that had muffled the report of the weapon he had fired the night before. Then six husky natives carried the body out into the clearing where the camp stood, and deposited it in a shallow grave. As the loose earth fell upon the silent form beneath the tell-tale blankets, Albert Werper heaved another sigh of relief. His plan had worked out even better than he had dared hope. With Ahmed Zek and Mohammed Bade both dead, the raiders were without a leader, and after a brief conference they decided to return into the north on visits to the various tribes to which they belonged. Werper, after learning the direction they intended taking, announced that for his part he was going east to the coast, and as they knew of nothing he possessed which any of them coveted, they signified their willingness that he should go his way. As they rode off, he sat his horse in the center of the clearing, watching them disappear one by one into the jungle, and thanked his God that he had at last escaped their villainous clutches. When he could no longer hear any sound of them, he turned to the right and rode into the forest toward the tree where he had hidden Lady Greystoke, and drawing rain beneath it, called up in a gay and hopeful voice a pleasant, "'Good morning!' But there was no reply, and though his eyes searched the thick foliage above him, he could see no sign of the girl. Dismounting, he quickly climbed into the tree, where he could obtain a view of all its branches. The tree was empty. Jane Clayton had vanished during the silent watches of the jungle night." Join us next week for the last two chapters of Tarzan 
and the jewels of Opar. Until then, if you're enjoying our story, please do send a review for 1001 Stories for the Road. We always appreciate reviews, and we've had a few lately I'd like to share. The first one, great podcast, five stars, 1001 Stories for the Road. John does a great job reading these adventure stories as well as picking the stories, I'd say. This has become my favorite thing to listen to while walking, driving, and just relaxing. Keep up the great work, John. I'm currently enjoying The Murder of Roger Ackroyd. Job well done. Down from Andy Realty, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, five stars. Big fan of John and 1001 Stories. I'm a big fan of all the 1001 Stories, especially Stories for the Road. I enjoy being introduced to stories I might not have otherwise read. I'm listening to The Jewels of Opar right now and surprised myself on how much I'm enjoying it and the other Tarzan stories. I really like the Sherlock Holmes stories, too. Thanks, John. You're the best. Down from Kajasa 2, Apple Podcast U.S. And this one, Addicting, 5 Stars, 1001 Stories for the Road. Excellent stories, excellently read. Keeps me coming back. Now from Carrie M. War, Apple Podcast U.S. And this one, Jewels of Opar, 5 Stars, 1001 Stories for the Road. I look forward each week to the new chapters of this fun Tarzan adventure. Since the day I found all these 1001 podcasts, I haven't turned on the TV. Thank you, John, for bringing so many wonderful authors off dusty shelves and into the light to brighten the lives of so many. When I have a little extra money, if politicians perhaps become servants of the people rather than their own pocketbook, I promise to share and send some your way. Down from RW, Apple Podcast U.S. And RW, I feel your pain. All we can do together is hope for a brighter future. And this one, Chapter 15, Six Question Marks. 1001 Stories for the Road, 5 Stars. Love your reading the Tarzan books. What Happened to Opar, Chapter 15? Down from T.N. Morga, Apple Podcast U.S. And T.N. Morga, thank you so much because your review helped me to go back and add Chapter 15. And I recently found out that the three before that had been confused with another insertion. And I took care of all that at about 4 o'clock this morning. My fault entirely, but I know that everything is available now for you. Right up here through these chapters today. Thanks for letting me know. It's appreciated. I always appreciate it when you guys find me. If you ever need to email me, it's 1001storiespodcast at gmail.com. That's another good way to get in touch with me quickly. Thank you so much for your reviews for 1001 Stories for the Road. They are greatly appreciated, and I know that they help new listeners decide to give us a try. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. This is 1001 Stories for the Road. We'll return next Sunday at noon Eastern Time. Until then, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.